Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Optimizing Patient Outcomes in Advanced NSCLC in a Rapidly Evolving Treatment Era, a video-based patient case series, is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by independent educational grants from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation and Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. I've been working construction since I was 18 years old. All my friends were graduating high school and going off to college. I decided to join my buddy and his dad in their family construction business. I never called off sick a day in those entire years. In fact, I never even went to the doctor. <laughs> I got bad genes though. Both my dad and my uncle died of lung cancer. They were heavy smokers, cigarettes, pipes, cigars. Me? I never had an interest. Tried it once in high school and that was enough for me. Now cooking, that's my passion. I gotta admit, I'm pretty good at it. Probably should open up my own restaurant. See, I have a stressful work. About six months ago, I uh, developed this annoying cough. Just wouldn't go away. It just kept persisting and persisting. And of course I let it go because uh, I just ignored it. Till it kept me up at night, and my wife insisted that I go see my primary care doctor. So eventually I called and made the appointment. He thought it was a bout of bronchitis, so he put me on a Z-Pack. It was Valentine's Day, I remember, because I went to pick up my prescription and uh, picked up a card for my wife while I was there. But a month goes by and I still don't have any relief, so I went back to the doctor. He put me on a stronger antibiotic and also gave me something for my cough. I got some relief, but uh, then came the shortness of breath. I would climb a flight of stairs and uh, I'd, be, I'd be winded. I'm 49 years old and I'm in great shape, so I knew something bigger was going on. So I went back to the doctor and this time I insisted on a chest x-ray. That's where it all started. So this is our patient. Um, it's a 49-year-old male without uh, significant uh, past medical history and had a progressive cough over six months. Several courses of antibiotics did not improve his symptoms. A chest radiograph showed multiple lung masses um, and a large uh, left lingula infiltration. CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis again showed the left lung mass um, almost nine or over nine centimeters extending to the left hilum and um, extending to the pericardium with mediastinal right hilar lymphadenopathy and multiple um, bilateral uh, lung masses in addition to a left adrenal gland mass that was uh, 4.3 by 3.2 by 4.5 centimeters. An MRI of the brain was negative for metastatic disease, and then completion of staging with PET-CT showed that there was extensive hypermetabolic activity um, in the uh, supraclavicular lymph nodes, the left upper lobe mass, the lung nodules, the lymphadenopathy in the mediastinum and hilum, in the bone, and in the left adrenal. These are key images from uh, the patient's CT scan and PET-CT. Um, CT scans are um, on the outside edges. You can see the lung masses and diffuse uptake um, in the left and in the right lung masses on the PET-CT in the middle. 
So the patient underwent a CT-guided biopsy, and uh, which revealed a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma, CK7 positive, TTF1 positive, NAPSIN A positive. Um, the molecular testing showed a PDL1 um, of 90%, um, and uh, TMB was not sufficient, and uh, tissue was not sufficient for um, uh, NGS genetic testing. Therefore, we performed a liquid biopsy NGS, um, which showed a KRAS G12C mutation in addition to TP53 and other uh, uh, variants of undetermined significance. What treatment would you recommend for this patient as uh, first line, non-squamous, no actionable mutation? I would ask uh, Dr. Wakeley, with all of the, the options that are now approved for frontline, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer without an actual mutation, how do you even think about um, what you're going to choose for frontline therapy in a patient like this? So that's a it's a great question, and obviously when you look at these answers, you see that there isn't one right answer. Um, I think all of these are reasonable, given that this is a pretty young patient who is relatively symptomatic with his cough and with a pretty big disease burden in the lung, I would be in favor of one of the regimens that does contain chemotherapy. When you look at the immune therapy only regimens, there's definitely a proportion of patients who don't do well pretty early on. Most of the um, advantages that we see in regards to progression-free um, survival tend to happen after a few months. So there are definitely some patients who really don't get any benefit at all just on immune therapy alone. But when you give the chemo plus immune therapy, then you, you get that, uh, there's no separation early on. They sort of, they start off together and then the immune therapy combination gets better quickly. So anyway, I, I tend to favor the combinations for that reason in someone like this who's otherwise young and, and fit. But when we look at all of these options, there's certainly data to support any of these combinations. And the option E, which is the nivolumab, ipilimumab with chemo, which is the 9LA regimen, is the more recent one where, and it's a little different because it's only two cycles of chemotherapy versus our other combination regimens give at least four. I have to say though, for this case, I would probably give the carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab. I just find that the, that chemo backbone tends to be better tolerated by most patients and just have more experience with it. But I think the audience members who gave other options, that's reasonable too. Um, and it's so really hard to, to pick between these, to be honest with you. I, I will mention, and I'm sure you're gonna get to this, that even though this patient didn't have an actionable first-line mutation, they do have the KRAS G12C, where there are a couple of drugs, targetable um, agents that are in development. And we also know that patients with the KRAS mutations do tend to do better with immune therapy and especially the chemo combination. So what would you give, Karen? So I would agree with you that a patient who's young and relatively symptomatic, and this is a patient with pretty significant disease burden, that I would like to see a response and would choose a chemotherapy um, combination. But I do struggle a little bit because um, though there are those patients who um, have progression on single agent um, pembrolizumab or atezolizumab, there are also those patients who respond and 
potentially may not need further therapy. You know, there are a small subset that have long responses, um, even up to five years out. And so if this patient were to be one of those patients, um, we've committed this patient now to chemotherapy. So um, I struggle with that still. But at, mm -hmm. for this patient, I think I would use a chemotherapy regimen. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. I think that's probably why some of our audience did vote for single agent um, immune therapy. I guess I was also looking at it from the perspective that when we look at the single agent immune therapy response rates versus the combination of chemotherapy plus immune therapy, the combination um, response rates are always higher. And I, I guess I was just struck by the total burden of disease in this lung. So. Yes. I agree. So now we will um, start looking at this data and starting to uh, look at some of the details that help to support um, the options that we have here. So again, this is first-line treatment for advanced non-small cell lung cancer without targetable activating mutations. We are going to focus here on non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer with some of the data in squamous cell. Um, and uh, we'll talk about single-agent checkpoint inhibition, checkpoint inhibition with chemotherapy, and then dual checkpoint inhibition with or without chemotherapy, as uh, Dr. Wakeley just discussed uh, some of the 9LA results. And here are our approved options, FDA-approved options for frontline therapy for these patients without actionable mutations. And it's pretty impressive um, here, and we'll be talking about um, each of these um, specifically. Um, but this is uh, just to show you that it, there are a lot of options, all of which are FDA-approved and potentially reasonable options for these patients. The NCCN guidelines do help us some. Um, again, for patients who have high PDL1 expression greater than 50%, um, pembrolizumab and atezolizumab as single agents are um, preferred options, but also the combination of platinum, pemetrexid, pembrolizumab. Other recommended are the combinations of carboplatin paclitaxel bevacizumab, atezolizumab, um, carboplatin albumin bound paclitaxel and atezolizumab, and then the nevo um, ipilimumab, pemetrexid uh, platinum, or the nivolumab ipilimumab um, combination in certain patients. For those that are 1 to 49 percent, generally we uh, steer away from single agent. Um, immune checkpoint inhibition, and so um, the preferred here, again, for non-squamous is the platinum pemetrexid pembrolizumab, but we also do have the um, other combinations, um, including bevacizumab, the atizolizumab combination, and the ipinevo um, chemo or ipinevo alone. So now we'll look at the case for second-line treatment. I'm back. I just can't believe I went from never seeing a doctor to having more appointments than I can even count. Although I tolerated the treatments, uh, four cycles of carboplatin and pemetrexid and pembro really well. I only lost about six pounds in total. Um, after about a month, uh, my results came back pretty well. I, my breathing improved significantly. My PET scans uh, after four cycles looked really great. 
I found that out the day before Thanksgiving. I wasn't having any more symptoms and no radiation was necessary. Happy Thanksgiving, right? So they put me on two drugs to continue things looking good. I was relieved. I went back to work and somewhat of a normal life. Well, you know, as normal as you can expect with uh, living with a cancer diagnosis. About uh, late February, I uh, started getting this pain in the middle of my back. I thought it was work-related, so uh, I just ignored it. But it kept getting worse, so um, I decided to tell my doctor when I went in to get my confusion. She told me to get it checked out right away, and scans came back and said I had a lesion on my spine and another one on my liver. <sighs> Great. I thought I avoided radiation, but it looks like I just added another doctor to my list. Well, I completed the radiation and uh, my pain improved. Um, but uh, before my appointment with my oncologist, I, uh, I developed a, a cough and a fever. So here I thought my cancer was coming back. So they set me up another appointment with my oncologist and um, she said she was going to switch gears. So again, um, after four cycles of therapy with carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab, there was significant um, tumor response. And you see in the PET scan in the middle, what was um, hypermetabolic previously is really um, significantly improved. Um, so the patient had a, an excellent response but unfortunately then um, developed progression in a spine and uh, liver lesion. And um, now we need to think about what do we do next for this patient? Um, Heather, do we have good options for patients following frontline therapy with uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy? We certainly do, though there's a lot of work being done on what we can do that might be better. I would remind the audience that this patient was on pemetrexid and pembrolizumab at the time of progression. So I certainly would not put continue him on pembrolizumab or pemetrexid at this time. And there is some data that if a patient has progression in a single area and you give radiation, you could continue whatever they were on beforehand. But this patient progressed in a lot of places. So I wouldn't give that. And for the same reason, I wouldn't continue, I wouldn't put nivolumab as a single agent or tezolizumab as a single agent here. There's really no data that switching from one checkpoint inhibitor to another single checkpoint inhibitor would be the right thing to do. So assuming you don't have a good clinical trial for this patient and you're not going to put them on a KRAS G12C therapy, uh, which would of course still be a trial at this time, then chemotherapy would be what I would think about. This is a patient who did respond well to um, the three drug regimen, and it was only after stopping the platinum that he eventually progressed. I wouldn't put him back on a platinum right now, but I would be thinking about other chemo and likely a taxane. And docetaxel is the one that we uh, use the most in this setting. Again, he's young and otherwise fit. And so I think the addition of anti-angiogenesis therapy is important. So docetaxel ramucirumab would be what I'd be leaning towards in this particular case. I, I think I would agree. Um, with that. Um, and uh, again, the immunotherapy alone options would be um, less favored. Again, we have uh, not a lot of data that uh, continuing on an immunotherapy post 
progression on a chemoimmunotherapy, um, especially since he was on maintenance therapy, would be something beneficial. So we prefer clinical trials for this type of patient, but outside of that, um, I think the ramucirumab docetaxel would be uh, a, a very good regimen for this patient, and we will look at some of the data to uh, determine why. So um, again, moving on to selection of therapy for these patients without targetable activating mutations once they progress on platinum-based first-line therapy, um, assuming, again, most of these patients are uh, have progressed on immunotherapy also. For, um, for about a, a decade, we had platinum-based uh, doublet plus bevacizumab, plus or minus bevacizumab, um, and uh, this was our preferred first-line approach. We generally used the platinum-based doublet based on um, toxicities we thought were compatible with a patient's underlying uh, comorbidities, um, but we, we didn't have a lot of uh, good options for patients. But now, um, almost all patients will receive immunotherapy in the first line. So how do we treat these patients? Um, if they didn't receive immunotherapy in the first line, um, maybe some of them began prior to the approvals um, or for some reason didn't get it but could be eligible. How do we treat patients who progress on chemoimmunotherapy um, and other patients who may benefit less from uh, immunotherapy? So for, um, again, looking again at the NCCN guidelines at subsequent therapy for patients um, with uh, non-small cell lung cancer without activating mutations. We have the three immunotherapies that uh, got approved based on the second line setting, all category one, nivolumab, pembrolizumab for PDL one greater than or equal to one, and atezolizumab. Um, but again, most of these patients now are starting on um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, and so those are not going to be preferred for most patients. So now we're back to what we had um, 20 years ago, um, docetaxel, pemetrexid if not used in the front line, gemcitabine, and then the combination of remisurumab and docetaxel. This is looking back at the original data um, when uh, all of the drugs um, were looking at um, their immunotherapy, their checkpoint inhibitor versus docetaxel. And the nivolumab um, was looked at in both um, squamous cell and non-squamous cell separately. Pembrolizumab specifically in patients with PDL1 of greater than or equal to 1%, and it is elizumab um, in all comers. But again, most of our patients are going to have had um, immune checkpoint inhibitors as frontline therapy, so we really need to look at something that will benefit a patient um, post immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And so one addition is um, ramucirumab, which was approved in 2014 in combination with docetaxel for patients who progressed after platinum-based therapy. everyone, I've had a lot of struggles in my life. My mother died of breast cancer when I was 32 and pregnant with my second child. My father, a lifelong smoker, died five years later of a massive heart attack. I married the love of my life, John, when I was 24, and lost him three years ago after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. My life changed forever. 
My three children and my grandchildren have been amazing at filling the void, and my work as a school administrator keeps me pretty busy. I've always been in good health, but with my family history, I was meticulous at getting my mammograms and staying physically fit. In 2001, I was in a terrible car accident, and I fractured my ankle, my wrist, and a bone in my neck. I had to have neck surgery for degenerative issues. The pain improved significantly, but was just always there. So when it started getting worse, I attributed it to arthritis. <laughs> At 68 years of age, I expected to have more aches and pains and creaky joints. Then I developed pain in my left hip, which concerned me. Uh, the pain was nagging, especially after my daily walks, so I made an appointment with my PCP. He attributed it to muscle strain, sciatica, and I was in total agreement. So we built physical therapy into my already busy workday. I didn't mention to him that I had this annoying dry cough, but in hindsight, I probably should have. After 12 sessions of PT with no improvement and the pain was so severe that walking was difficult, I was sent for an MRI. The day of the MRI, I needed a wheelchair just to make it into the appointment. I was certain I fractured something again. But what happened next would become the biggest struggle of my life. I knew I was at an increased risk for breast cancer. But when I was told that the MRI showed cancer in my hip, I was completely blindsided, confused, and most of all, scared. I, I didn't have one of my children go to the appointment with me because I thought, oh, I would hear the same old it's arthritis story from the PCP. I felt so alone. I remember thinking, no way, this is cancer. My PCP ordered more tests that showed I also had a five centimeter mass in my chest. Then I had a CT guided needle biopsy and on February 17th, 2018, a day I will never forget, at the age of 68 years old and with thoughts of my mother's cancer racing through my head, I sat in the oncologist's office and heard the words, you have lung cancer. <laughs> lung cancer? No way, I never smoked a day in my life. So we've just heard about our case, 68-year-old woman, non-smoker, lots of different pains, but it developed this hip pain that just kept getting worse. And as she went through her evaluation, was found to have a left-sided lung mass, um, which was biopsied and was proven to be lung cancer. So at this point, um, we're going to move forward. And we see here that uh, these are some of the findings. She had a thoracic MRI, um, which caught just a little bit of hint of that lesion, and then CT scans, which confirmed it. Um, so she is shown to have this on her PET scan. She's got uptake in her lung, as well as having uptake in her bones, in her hip. Um, she also had a brain MRI, which was done and revealed two small areas uh, without any edema, a seven, they were both about seven millimeters in size, and you can see them here. So at this point, what we know about her disease is that the PDL1 is 70%. So what do you favor doing at this time? Um, this is a patient with no smoking history, no known risk factors for lung cancer. Even though PDL1 is high, that's not the whole story. Um, so you do go ahead and send for testing. Um, while you're waiting for those molecular results, would you refer the patient for palliative radiation to the hip or to the brain? 
the correct option from my perspective would be to go ahead and radiate the hip because she is having so much pain and having a lot of difficulty ambulating and you're waiting for these molecular results. For the brain lesion, I think there's a bit more controversy there. In this setting, I would think about waiting um, because they're asymptomatic and small and you're gonna be able to treat them systemically, but there would not be any harm in voting to go ahead and do the radiation to the brain as well. Okay, so this patient had uh, molecular testing done. Um, initially, it was insufficient, but then went back and did more. And it turned out she did have an EGFR mutation. And I think it's important to remember that it's a little tricky these days because we get our PDL1 results back first, but molecular results are critical for understanding what's going to be the best treatment option for a patient. Um, we're going to cover some more of the data a little bit later. But for patients who have underlying driver mutations, EGFR, such as in this case, ALK, ROS1, several of the others, if you have high PDL1 but you have a specific driver mutation, oftentimes even with that high PDL1, the immune therapy does not work well. And so you actually can be causing harm by reacting immediately to that PDL1 result without having the molecular testing especially in a patient like this who does not have a smoking history and therefore is a much higher likelihood of having an underlying driver mutation. All right, so these are her results and we see that she does have this EGFR L858R, uh, one of the two most common of the activating EGFR mutations. So this patient's now had radiation to her hip. She, we talked with her about the brain radiation. She decided she didn't want to proceed with that right now. Her hip pain starting to get better with that start in radiation. Now that you know she has this EGFR L858R mutation, what do you favor doing? So if you were to choose an EGFR TKI alone, what would be your preferred choice? And of course, these are all FDA approved options for first line treatment of non-small cell lung cancer with an activating EGFR mutation. Okay, now, Dr. Reckamp and I get a chance to talk through our choices. So, um, Dr. Reckamp, welcome to the conversation. Well, I, I agree that um, it's challenging when we get a result back um, for a patient that is PDL1 of 70%, and a patient, especially this patient with pain and multiple metastases, who probably wants to start treatment yesterday. Um, the the goal would be to start treatment as soon as possible. So you see that PDL one of fifty of seventy percent, and you want to treat this patient. Um, unfortunately, um, we know that um, when you have uh, especially EGFR mutations, but potentially other alterations, and these patients get um, would be better served with uh, TKI um, therapy. Um, then toxicities may be worse if they receive immunotherapy prior to their TKI therapy. So we really need to treat the patient with the best treatment at the, to start with. And so waiting for the full panel of results prior to starting immunotherapy is essential. And again, we know in, especially in EGFR patients, that monotherapy with immunotherapy is really minimally beneficial. So I think um, that's an incredibly important point with this, uh, with this first patient. Yeah, I know, I absolutely agree. I remember when we were um, first starting to do pdl one testing, I noticed that a really high percentage of our ALK positive patients had high PDL1, and that's something that's been seen in multiple series. 
and they just I think there's been one ALK patient reported who ever responded to a checkpoint inhibitor, so it's a huge risk. Um, and with EGFR, it's that same thing. And, and it is hard because we're dealing with people who have just been diagnosed with cancer and they have this one result with high PDL1. And of course, they want to start treatment right away. And so it's just such an important part of our job to help coach them and help them understand that by waiting just a little bit longer, we can give them the best treatment as opposed to starting with what's most available and, and easiest to start immediately. Um, and so that's just such a, a critical, critical part of this case as well. So completely agree. Um, so now that we know that she does have EGFR, LA58R, um, what would you be thinking about as a first-line treatment? I think that um, my first-line treatment of choice is still going to be osimertinib. Um, you know, the choices, um, and you'll discuss this in detail, um, looking at uh, first or second generation, first generation EGFR TKIs and um, and VEGF inhibition or chemotherapy do show promise, um, but with the toxicity associated with uh, combination therapies um, and the, the how well tolerated osimertinib is and its uh, penetrance into the brain, um, that still is my first choice for patients with uh, activating mutations in EGFR as frontline therapy. Great. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So as you said, I'm going to start going through some of the data then, and that'll give us more time for some discussion later on. So thanks. For the NCCN guidelines, you can see that osimertinib is the category one preferred one. That's from the FLORA trial. But we still have these other options, the erlotinib, afatinib, dacamitinib, gefitinib, and erlotinib plus ramaciramab. Um, and these are the first and second generation drugs or first generation plus VEGFR TKI, and then there's some other choices too. So we're now gonna hear a bit more about our patient and what's happening with her at this time. Testing on the cancer showed that my tumor had an EGFR mutation. So at least I didn't have to undergo chemotherapy and I was able to take a pill, osmertinib, to control the cancer. I had to get lab work and an ECG before starting. I felt great on the osmertinib, and the cough went away in a few days. But when I went back for a visit at two weeks, I had to have another ECG, and the oncologist came in looking very concerned. She told me that I had to stop the osmertinib because it was putting me at risk for a heart rhythm problem. She explained that this was very rare, but when they see changes on the ECG, they have to talk about switching therapy. Okay. So this patient, again, this is a rare toxicity, but it can happen. Um, and I've had a couple of patients in this situation where I've had to stop the osimertinib because of QTC prolongation. So we now have to think about an alternative option for this patient. Um, so we've stopped it. Her QTC has gone back to normal. Um, what would you recommend now? So your alternative first-line option. Dr. Reckamp, you get to uh, join me. Um, and talk again. So now that this patient has developed QTC prolongation, osimertinib is no longer an option for her. What would you think about doing? So um, I agree, this is an uncommon um, toxicity, but one that we need to watch out for. And uh, though osimertinib is quite well tolerated, there are those patients who um, are unable to tolerate it and um, need a different therapy. At this time, um, my choice is um, still single agent 
EGFR-TKI. Most patients who don't tolerate osimertinib will be able to tolerate a first or second generation um, EGFR-TKI, noting that they will likely have more rash and diarrhea that need to be managed. Um, so I, I go back to the, the standard of uh, erlotinib many times. Um, mm -hmm. I've also gone back to gefitinib, which is uh, really quite well tolerated. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, patients will respond um, and uh, and, and again, the single agent versus adding chemotherapy or um, VEGF therapy, um, still I think that the toxicity of that and uh, lack of overall survival benefit for VEGF therapy, um, I think that I, I still go to the single agent, but uh, combination therapy would be very reasonable for these patients. I wouldn't move straight to chemotherapy because the EGFR therapy is quite important. Great, yeah, so I've, um... I've sometimes gone with the fatinib um, for these cases. Um, I haven't used dacamitinib. Obviously, it is an approved option. Um, one of the things that gave me pause was the potential less uh, activity in the brain. We know a fatinib is quite active in the brain, as are lotinib and, and gefitinib. And dacamitinib probably has some brain activity, but I was a little cautious since patients were excluded from Archer 1050 if they had brain metastases. Um, so that's what I've thought about. I have um, the combinations of the VEGFR therapy plus EGFR therapy, especially since we do have the Erlotinib-Ramiserumab combination approved has been intriguing. But like you, um, the overall survival benefit is something I, I certainly think about and, and kind of that trade-off of pill drug versus already having to start coming in for infusions and, and quality of life. And it's it's definitely a tough balance trying to weigh those things. So I agree with you. I think there uh, it's possible that some of our audience isn't as familiar with the rapidly changing role of different combination regimens in the first-line treatment. Um, we got very used to this idea that if you found an EGFR-TKI, you would start on EGFR-TKI therapy, and it was um, erlotinib or gefitinib or fatinib for a while. And then with the flora in the US at least, very simple to think about, okay, osimertinib. But now we have to think about, well, combinations with chemotherapy plus EGFR-TKI, combinations of VEGF plus EGFR-TKI. Okay, so these are our guidelines. Newly diagnosed EGFR mutant lung cancer, preferred choice, osimertinib, others, Erlotinib, afatinib, gefitinib, bedacamitinib, or erlotinib, ramiserumab, as we talked about, may be useful, or erlotinib, bevacizumab. Okay, so let's hear a little bit more about our case. We talked about other pills that are EGFR inhibitors, but she said that erlotinib can be combined with an IV therapy that helps it work longer. So after my ECG looked normal, I started on the erlotinib and the IV drug, ramiserumab. I am so thankful for the incredible advances in cancer. I love my treatment team, and I mean team with a capital T. I rely on each and every one of them, from the parking attendant to the nurses to the doctor. We have become a family. I was fully prepared when I started this journey to have days that I would feel completely wiped out. Thankfully, I've had very few of those. Going into the infusion center for my treatment has become a new routine, and fortunately, I'm not really having any side effects except for a few pimples on my face. For now, this is working, and my scans show that the tumor is shrinking. 
My oncologist is very happy, but she has let me know that eventually this will stop working and then we'll have to think about chemotherapy. But for now, I'm feeling pretty good, enjoying my grandkids, and I'm even thinking about going back to work. But soon things changed, really changed. Early this year, the world went into lockdown over COVID-19, and at my age, I was terrified. My CT scan scheduled for March had to be rescheduled for May. I had been doing so well, it was decided I could wait. Plus, my kids were insistent that I not leave the house during the pandemic. However, as April continued, I began to experience some headaches, fatigue, and weight loss. I brushed it off as stress due to the pandemic. But the headaches got progressively worse, where I couldn't even do any work from home. So I scheduled a telemedicine visit with my oncologist on April 30th. My oncologist added an MRI of the brain on top of my CT scan. So here we are, three new lesions in my brain and liver lesions. So here we go again. Okay, so unfortunately, um, our patient who initially did well with erlotinib-ramacirumab now has disease progression. Um, to try to figure out what to do is next step. A liver biopsy is done and sent for next-gen sequencing, but she still has the same EGFR mutation and no clear path forward from that direction. She does get the brain treated with serotactic radiation. She's feeling a lot better. Um, what would you think about doing now though? Okay, so uh, Dr. Reckamp, um, let's hear from you. What would you think about giving? Yes, I find uh, second line therapy and then especially this patient has received both osimertinib and the combination um, therapy, relotinib and ramucirumab, so has had uh, exposure to several agents. Um, I will say that I prefer to place these patients on trial because there's a lot we don't know about resistance um, in this setting. Um, but when we need to move toward chemo, we know that chemo works very well for patients with EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. I um, do not like the toxicity of carboplatin and paclitaxel, so I generally don't use the Empower 150 regimen, um, and this patient had already received a VEGF uh, receptor inhibitor. Um, so I, I generally do go with chemotherapy with carboplatin and pemetrexid. Um, for somebody with a brain metastasis, um, I generally like to keep them on their EGFR-TKI, and if I keep them on their EGFR-TKI, I do not give um, pembrolizumab or any other immunotherapy. Um, the challenge with this patient is that uh, the best penetration in the brain is with osimertinib and uh, she didn't tolerate that. Um, but uh, but if in this case, I, I would go with chemotherapy, um, probably not with, with carboplatin and pemetrexid as the backbone. Yeah, I would probably do the, the same. Um, with her having just a few brain lesions, they were treated, uh, and her high um, PDL1, she said when I might be more tempted to think about a regimen uh, like the Empower 150 for that reason, but I often will go with carboplatin pemetrexid as my next line too. So yeah, agree with you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by independent educational grants from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation and Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.